Tonight I'd like to talk about uh, the topic of seclusion, which is the translation of the Pali word viveka. Um, and maybe many of you might be familiar with a particular book of Ajahn Sumedho's called Chitta Viveka, which um, is called Teachings from the Quiet Mind, but more literally translates as um, the secluded mind. <clears throat> But I want to talk about some various aspects of Viveka, not only Chitta Viveka. Um, and there's Kaya Viveka, which is seclusion of body, Chitta Viveka, seclusion of mind, <clears throat> leading into more refined types of mental seclusion. But there's also at least one place where the Buddha, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, uses Viveka as uh, another designation for Nibbana. A particular quotation is someone asks, do you know, dear sir, emancipation, release, seclusion for beings? And Bhikkhu Bodhi points out that those are meant as three designations for Nibbana in that um, particular reference, meaning seclusion, really meaning separation from suffering. You know, not with suffering. So I'd like to I don't know, it just interests me, so I'd like to talk about different aspects of this, of seclusion, of Viveka. And obviously, just on, not just, it's big, but on the level of Kaya Viveka, seclusion of body, that's obviously a huge part of our practice. And it's also, as I'm sure you know, a very intrinsic and respected aspect of, I would say, most spiritual traditions that I know of. The sense of going into seclusion, whether it's an intensive retreat or simply seclusion in nature, um, going off alone into the wilderness. You know, various and many traditions have that as uh, a central part, at least for the role of the mystic, if not for every single person who's part of that tradition. Um, and so, obviously, a big part of what we're doing when we come on a retreat such as this, whether it's for a day or for six months, is moving into this aspect of the mystical tradition, of pretty much all traditions. So I want to read a little bit about the uh, Christian early desert fathers because it's a little bit long, but it, it hits on several aspects of what I want to talk about in relation to seclusion tonight. <clears throat> it's from a book about hermits from all different traditions. It's talking about the Desert Fathers. Um, the desert is the uninhabitable place. It is the region of desolation and solitude that surrounds and threatens the fertile plain. This is in Egypt. Along the Nile Valley, the desert is a silent presence, always visible to the dwellers in towns and villages as they live in comfort on the rich, dark soil. Its bare hills are the waste, howling wilderness of the Old Testament, the haunts of demons. And yet men and women have always been drawn from the comfort and security of their homes in the valley to the barren caves above in search of solitude. And then they talk about 
perhaps the most famous of the Desert Fathers, Saint Antony of Egypt, whose life inspired thousands to leave their homes and follow him. He was the son of rich Christian parents who died in his youth, leaving him well provided for with a life of ease. But one day when he was in church and he heard the words of Jesus to the rich young man that he should sell all he had and give it to the poor, Antony inexplicably felt the words were spoken to him and actually did that, <laughs> which is rare in this world. He gave everything he had and uh, he went to a local hermit to learn how to live in solitude, went to a teacher, and then he went way away, uh, for far, far into the desert until he finally ended up way, way out in a deserted fort in Pispir on the east bank of the Nile. He lived alone without seeing a human face for over 20 years. His friends would bring him supplies of bread and water every six months. Sometimes, the friends who brought these supplies would hear terrifying shrieks and groans from behind the locked doors. Eventually, they could stand this no longer, eventually, 20 years, and they broke down the doors, expecting to release a wasted and emaciated maniac. Instead, Antony emerged healthy, sane, and balanced. He went to Alexandria to support the Christians who were being persecuted there and spent the rest of his life alternating between retreats into solitude and emerging to help and advise others. I love that. It just touches on a lot of aspects, as you can see, right, of what we're doing here. It's really a huge, huge renunciation. This, even just the kaya we wake up, just the solitude of body, which I'll go more into. And it's not just for ourselves alone. And it requires meeting all of our demons. So, kaya we wake up, solitude of body, is where we begin. Simply by removing ourselves from, you know, the mobs, from so much busyness, from so much input of sense impression. Why? How is this helpful? It's from Thomas Merton, who is one of our more um, famous present day, well, he's not alive now, but relatively present day Christian hermits. He was wanted to be a hermit. He wasn't allowed to be a hermit that much, actually. He was always yearning to be a hermit. But he was saying how the search for solitude is a journey to discover the inner self. The monks fled to the desert to become ordinary. If they had gone there to be extraordinary, this would have meant taking the world with them as a standard of comparison. They lived among the rocks because they wanted to be themselves and to flee a world that divided them from themselves which isn't meaning fleeing the world with aversion because we hate everything and everybody, and so we're going to go off into the rocks because they at least will leave us in peace. Although I certainly, speaking for myself, on rare occasions have had that, <laughs> have had that feeling about, thank God I can escape into the silence, you know. Um, but of course, that's not 
the ultimate reason, but really to become ordinary, to discover our inner self. And it's not just to create, you know, a constructed state of inner or outer calm and quiet that we then hold on to for dear life. It's really so that, like St. Anthony, when we emerge, we're actually able to be more present with compassion and less reactivity in the world. It's not to leave all the world out of hatred. But just to even begin the inner journey, some um, seclusion on the physical level is really, really helpful. Seclusion uh, from sense experience, first from all the input of people, of course we know that, and simply to stop feeding the craving for sense desire, which, as we know, because there's so much overwhelming whirl of sense experience in our ordinary daily life, in our family life, just in um, the flood of information, in, in sense pleasures that we can have, it's just so much that it's really difficult to even be able to disengage enough to see what else might be possible without physically removing ourselves just a little. And this is Ajahn Chah talking about the flood of sensuality, which is really what leads us into needing some seclusion. It says, we are sunk in sights, in sounds, in smells, in tastes, in bodily sensations, We're sunk because we look outwardly at externals. We don't look inwardly. And it's like being a slave. Somebody else has control over you. It's as if they tell you to sit, you have to sit. When they say walk, you have to walk. Being enslaved by the senses is the same. No matter how hard you try, you can't shake it off. And so really just this first step of physical seclusion, coming to a retreat, just being quiet for an hour, coming here for six months, or fleeing into the desert for 20 years, is just to begin to take our senses out of this flood of sensuality to be able to begin to look inward instead of being such, so enslaved by senses pleasure and reaction to it that we don't even know how to disengage. Thich Nhat Hanh. We've lost our taste for silence. We don't know how to be ourselves without something else to accompany us. We need a book, telephone, TV, etc. We've lost our taste for being alone. And the first thing for us to do is to return to ourselves in order to recover ourselves to be our best. We need to reorganize our lives so that we do not allow society to colonize us. We don't allow sense experience to colonize us. And so you know, of course, some of you have just been here a few days, so what I'm about to say is more familiar to you. The rest of you, of course, this is so far distant, you'll have, you vaguely remember. But you know how it is when we first come on retreat, those first few days, 
And the beginning disengagement from the flood of sensuality is so difficult. The restlessness, the sleepiness, and the endless chattering of the mind, which I know some of you, as I said, are so far beyond. But the endless chattering of the mind in response to sense pleasure, and just as the sense experiences are taken away, as you come here, for some days it's as if the endless chattering of the sixth sense or the mind just is brought into high relief. And as the rest of the senses quiet down a little, the chattering in the mind can almost get unbearable, right? Oh my God, you know, if this starts with this story again, I'm going to have to kill myself. I just can't bear it, you know? And over time, when we stop fighting that, even the flood of the endless chatter begins to slow down. I'm not saying stop, but it begins to slow down. It gets less obsessive. And just in this kaya we wake just in this physical seclusion, without at the moment really having done much else in terms of formal practice, there begins to be some space. The attention, the senses aren't turned so um, slavishly outward, externally. We're not in so much reaction to the chatter inwardly, and so it begins to slow down. And it begins to open up like a space or silence, however you experience it in the mind, in the heart. Okay, maybe itty-bitty at first. But it's the beginning of recognizing that there's another possibility, another way to be. And just the seclusion of body and senses allows us to begin to recognize the possibility of living more, being more at home in this inner mental space or silence of awareness, more potential for peace. Along with um, the seclusion, the physical seclusion, most retreats certainly in this tradition and often when you read about hermits in other traditions, nature often plays a big part in the physical aspect of the physical seclusion. Usually given a choice, you know, the Tibetan yogis go off to some remote, incredibly wild mountain cave. They don't usually pick a little basement apartment in Lhasa if they have a choice. I mean, it's not impossible, but there's something about nature that can be, certainly in my experience, supremely supportive of deepening um, the kaya wiweka, the seclusion of body. I find personally in nature, um, it tends to in me deepen the, kind of reflects the inner silence, the inner spaciousness of mind and heart. It doesn't tend to feed the incessant chatter, but just kind of leads into silence and space. I find as if from nature it reflects the inner silence and space of awareness of the mind and heart. And I think this can be very helpful as often on retreats you know when you're feeling really either caught up or stressed or 
caught in judgment or a pattern or fear and will say, just cool out, go walk in the woods, go sit, go out tonight, sit and look at the full moon. It's full moon night. It was clear when I came in and just, there's just something about it that to me just brings a stillness. In fact, two nights ago I was driving back from the airport and I was driving east. <laughs> Not good with drive. I was driving east and the moon was just coming up over the horizon, really huge, right in front of the row. And it was, it would just bring this immediate stillness and silence to my mind, a little too much, right? Because I needed to be focusing on the highway. And I go, the moon, you know, <laughs> completely <laughs> space out. And then, oh yeah, right back to driving. But it, it just has that capacity and it's really useful to use. Take us out of our chatter. This is a familiar poem by Wendell Berry, but I want to read it because for me it evokes that inner sense of stillness that nature can help us to recognize. When despair for the world grows in me and I awake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. That sense of freedom is really the freedom of total awareness and non-clinging. Really the ultimate wewaka, seclusion, separation from suffering is the peace, the spaciousness of the heart-mind of non-clinging. Just a touch of the silence, of the spaciousness, of awareness, makes it easier to cultivate more of a seclusion of body, leading to seclusion of mind, which leads us into the uh, understanding and the clear seeing that allows for uh, an even deeper release of clinging, of suffering. Of course, though, as we know, coming into the silence, the stillness, the aloneness of a retreat or the desert or wherever we're doing it in our little basement apartment as well, isn't only that the, ch the chatter slows down, the heart and mind get expansive, we touch a moment of peace, the space of non-clinging, and that just keeps expanding, expanding, expanding until that's all there is. Smooth, smooth, easy. As we know, that isn't exactly the root all the time. Remember what I read about the desert is the region of desolation and solitude that surrounds and threatens the fertile plain, the waste howling wilderness. You know, the shrieks and groans of Saint Anthony are also 
part of what arises in the course of our spiritual journey. And almost not in spite of the seclusion, but almost that by entering consciously, willingly into this space where we are withdrawing from the whirl of the flood of sensuality, where we are withdrawing from our usual interactions with other people into our usual distractions and ways that we spend our time, it's almost as if this space and silence gives the space almost as if it calls up, invites at some point what you could call our deeper personal demons to emerge. And in the first days of retreat, they're more generic in terms of the hindrances, the sleepiness, the restlessness, desire and aversion, which are more than just hindrances, doubt. And as a retreat goes on, or as a period of physical seclusion goes on, the demons might turn into more subtle, or maybe they feel less subtle, but more personally tuned to what each of our particular life pattern demons happen to be. And as a a function, really, of the silence and the spaciousness deepening of the endless chatter beginning to slow down, of us are not having our usual flood of sense experience to turn to, then it's almost as if we've invited, at some point, these demons to come up. And there's times in every retreat when we're going to feel like St. Anthony behind those doors in the cave, shrieking and groaning, you know. And it might be, you know, ways that it's, we're caught in it, but it's clear to us, it's our pattern, our so-called inner demon, you know, whether it's self-hatred, judgment, worthlessness, or lust, or strong desire, or conceit, comparing, um, pride, need to be perfect. Sometimes we don't quite recognize it because the content of the demons often, the deeper we go in our practice, takes the form of manifest in how we relate to the practice itself or how we relate to how we are doing the practice itself. So we don't recognize it's a demon when we take out the whip and beat ourselves up every time we wander from the breath. Or when we think I'm doing, you know, I'm pretty focused on the breath, but by this time it should be a lot better than this. By this time in the retreat, I should have, you know, 25% less thoughts than I'm having now. You know, some kind of insane thing that we made up out of God knows where and totally believe. And that thought can be accompanied with, you know, self-hatred or judgment, or it can be the other way, pride, I'm really doing good. Now look at that person. I've been here a lot less time than they have, and they don't look nearly as mindful as I do, you know. However we do it, but it's very easy for the demons to take the form of how we're relating to practice, Um, which isn't a bad thing, but just recognize. First, one clue, when the demons are there, we're suffering. Generally, it doesn't take really a huge subtlety of consciousness or awareness to recognize that we're suffering. 
we may not quite recognize what's the hook, but you really can tell it's different from, you know, lying down in the space of nature and the piece of wild things. You really know something's changed here. It's not quite so spacious. Sometimes we start to enter into um, not so personal demons, but really quite deep of fear of impermanence. You know, the, the total discomfort with instability or the discomfort with chaos. They're trying to control what's happening or what's going to happen or how my practice is. Or, as I've mentioned in other talks, you don't think you're trying to control. You simply think you're trying to have a clear explanation of everything that's happening, why and what it means and how it should be happening. That is also trying to fix chaos into some nice little box. It doesn't work, and we suffer a form of the demons. But it's not a mistake or wrong that these demons come up. It's part of it. You know, I, th- I think I said this here, but I love this line from one of my teachers where he said, in the light of awareness, all the snakes come out of their holes. That's really what it is. We go into the desert. We really seclude ourselves from our usual distractions. And in the light of mindfulness, which is not discriminating ultimately, it's heightening our awareness to simply notice whatever arises. Then it's as if these old friends that we have developed very um, subtle and useful defense mechanisms not to notice that they're there. They start to say, oh, great. These mechanisms, they're not quite operating. Whoosh, let me come up. And this is great, because until we see them in the light of awareness, in the light of day, until we turn around and recognize, then it's until that time, then we're really the slaves, as Ajahn Chah says. We're the slaves of these demons, of these patterns of our mind. When self-judgment says, shut up and sit down, we do it, you know? Or we do it in order not to recognize self-judgment. When pride says, do this so you look better, we do it, you know, rather than turning around and recognizing the pride. And so this is where learning to recognize these demons with, with mindfulness is the second aspect of even just kaya uweka at this point, which is not only being in physical seclusion, but using the attention to bring mindfulness, to have mindfulness wisdom, satipanya, as Ajahn Buddhadasa terms it, at the sense doors. So that in the moment of sense contact, in the moment of recognizing a sense experience is happening, including the mental, which could be many of our demons, anger, worthlessness, inferiority, whatever. In having mindfulness wisdom at the sense doors, recognizing its presence, connecting with mindfulness, recognizing it for what it is, panya, satipanya. Ah, that's mental experience, fear. That's mental experience, pride. Satipanya at the sense door is the second aspect of kaya viveka, of seclusion of body. And this is really what gives us the power of seeing the demons for what they are. You know that quotation from... um, Nyanaponika in his book Vision of Dhamma, 
where he talks about the power of naming. You know, he's talking about how primitive peoples believed that words exercised a magical power. He says that things that could be named had lost their secret power over humans, the horror of the unknown. To know the name of a force, a being, or an object was the same as mastery over it. This ancient belief in the magical potency of names also appears in fairy tales and myths, where the power of a demon is broken just by facing him courageously and pronouncing his name. And in some ways, this is exactly what goes on with observing power, mindfulness, satipanya at the point of the sense doors of contact. There's a vast difference between being driven by self-judgment, by feelings of inferiority, by pride, and being able to turn around and go, ah, self-judgment feels like this. Maybe it's not as vast a difference as we would wish, which is we would wish it would just all vanish as soon as we name it. But the power of it, the power of being able to turn around with the courage of mindfulness and with the clear seeing of Panya and name the particular force, that is really what takes the sense of self out of that particular demon. That's what takes the identification out and the fear of it until eventually that demon doesn't even have to go away. It stops being unknown. It stops being so horrible. It stops driving us. We stop being enslaved to it. And really, really there can be moments. Okay, fear can be here or not. It really doesn't make that much difference. Moments. Self-judgment, yeah, I recognize this. Feels like this. It'll come, it'll go. It's not who I am. Really that is from the kaya and the con- continuity of mindfulness, observing power, satipanya, at the sense doors. There's a, a Jewish saying I read, I don't know where, but I, I like that says that to, n- to name something is to know why God cannot be named. As soon as we name something, oh, That's what it is. It's taken out of the realm of the mystery, out of the realm of the unknowable, you know, of freedom, of peace, of awareness. And it's just become this conditioned phenomenon that comes due to conditions, that passes due to conditions, that comes again, maybe all too soon, due to conditions and passes again. But it's really different from mystery, from God, which can't be named. And it takes the fear, it takes the horror out of these things. So in Kaya Wiweka then, it's not only a matter of removing ourselves physically from other beings and from the flood of sensuality, but it's of using this seclusion to cultivate the steadiness of mindfulness, as Sayadaw Upandita describes it, this is Sayadaw Upandita's description of Kaya that first we remove ourselves from the environment of sense pleasures, but this is not enough. We also become mindful of whatever object arises at the six sense doors. 
directing the mind towards the object. This is very much Mahasi style of describing it. And as you direct the mind towards the object, it really connects for that moment only, becomes stable, engrossed with the object, notices, can name what is arising, sense experience of any of the six senses. In that moment, in that moment, the mind is free from desire, sense desire or aversion or delusion, just for that moment. It's knowing what's what. And that's really what we call restraint at the sense doors. Doesn't mean we have to hide from every sense experience, but restraint is meeting it with full awareness with satipanya. Moment after moment of this um, satipanya, of just meeting with full awareness, without judgment, without aversion, without clinging, this is what then leads to the uh, more stable quality of attention that verges into samadhi, you know, where the mind is more easily and continually uh, meeting each object. And that's then moving into what is referred to as citta awaka, where the mind, the heart, is secluded really from the hindrances. So that in Chittuweka, the mind is free from kalesas that are arising in reaction to sense pleasures, right? And this is a very pleasant state. Just having a mind free from kalesas just for a moment is really pleasant. You know, the kalesas are burning. They're tormenting. That's one of the translation is torments of the mind. And so the secluded mind the mind that the kalesas are just kept away, through steadiness of moment after moment mindfulness, that's a very peaceful and soothing and refreshing, really, experience. And when we're trying to get there because we think it'll be nice, you know, forget that, right? All we're doing then is cultivating, wanting um, self-sense. But by the moment after moment of just noticing what's present and naming it without getting involved in liking, disliking, making a story about it, then the chitta wiveka develops by itself. So we get interested in noticing how the mind reacts to sense experience. This is um, from a disciple of Ramana Maharshi. He's describing how can we recognize all our patterns that we get caught in in the mind, our suffering demons. And he says, if you want to pay attention to a special area of danger, watch how the five senses operate. Although I would say six senses here. It is the nature of the mind to seek stimulation through the senses. The mind catches hold of sense impressions and processes them in such a way that they produce long chains of uncontrolled thoughts. So learn to watch how your senses behave. Learn to watch how the mind reacts to sense impressions. And this is a whole very interesting, to me, aspect of our practice. When we get over hating the fact 
that as soon as we become aware of a tension in a neck, we go off into some whole long story about what it means. Or as soon as we smell some pleasant smell at 11.30 in the morning, we're off into the world of restaurants and dinner parties and all of that. As soon as we stop judging ourselves about that and can just get interested in noticing, oh, smell, pleasant, and the mind goes way out to lunch, literally and figuratively, on the smell. Say, oh, look at that. Come back to Satipanya at the sense door. Smell, pleasant, really wanting to make something of this. Oh, yeah, wanting feels like this, and it stops. Unpleasant tightness in the neck, and the mind really, oh, no, this again, it's how I'm sitting. If I could only find the right way to sit, and maybe if I had a higher pillow in my hand, maybe if I could go to that good cranial sacral guy that I've heard about. It's only a Barry. I'm sure that would fix me up. Oh, yeah. The mind is, in a way, just amusing itself, you know, rather than just notice tension, tension, unpleasant. But we don't judge this at all. We just get fascinated by watching this process. And in the fascination with it, we really see over and over, we get it viscerally, how these reactions, these habitual reactions of mind to every, every sense experience that happens are just feeding our sense of self and the resultant suffering. And really, it starts to get easier. It's more fulfilling. It makes us happier to meet the sense experience with satipanya. At first, it feels like we're really renouncing all the stories that make up the you know, the life story of me, and it feels like a real struggle. One of the reasons the discipline of samadhi practice can send our mind into tantrums like a two-year-old, you know, I'm not coming back to the breath and you can't make me, you know, there's nothing you can do. I'm going to think about this, God damn it, and it's going to make me happy, you know, and after about a million times, we get it, oh, this is really dukkha. It's much more pleasant it's much more peaceful to just come back and feel fluttering, you know? To just feel tension. It's like, oh yeah, tension. There's peace, there's ease, because there's no me, there's no story. There's nothing extra added. And so, in this way, the, uh, the satipanya, the steadiness of mindfulness as attention meets each of the six sense experiences as they arise, leads us quite naturally into the peacefulness, the quietness, the calm and coolness of, of citta viveka, of the mind that's secluded from the hindrances. It's very pleasant. And as we continue with practice, there can be time where the hindrances or all the uh, kalesas fade to become really, really remote. So in, for instance, with Chitta Uweka, we can be quite at peace, but something happens in the hindrances. They're just lurking around there, you know. They're just waiting for a crack and they come rushing back in. As the mind at times, it gets more and more peaceful, the kalesas are as if much more remote. There's a whole poly word for this, which I'm sure you're dying to know. And I'm sure you want to remember. So I'll just tell you. It's vikambana viveka, right? Way, way remote. 
And this is a place where, you know, the body feels light and uh, energized. The mind is soft and buoyant. And, yeah, it's nice. And this is a place that people, we can often get caught. We can uh, often mistake it for something more than it is. What is it? It's a constructed state where the mind is peaceful and it's very nourishing because kalesa aren't there. But if all we do is hang with that, it's nice, but it's not liberating insight. The kalesas, the torments, our patterns, our demons are not being uprooted. They're just simply way, way far away, you know. And so it's very important, even in this, you know, state where it all feels so far away, not to just, okay, you can have a few moments of really enjoying it. But then at some point, not to just think, well, this is it. There's no more work to do. Time to go home. And we do. You know, as someone was saying to me the other day, it was really quite insightful. They saw how they'd hit this really lovely place of sukkah and everything was really nice. And they saw the mind saying, okay, well, I guess it's time to leave now, you know. But they had the insight to see, well, this is another conditioned state and it changed, which of course it had changed by the time we were talking. Um, so there's ways we get attached, some quite subtly and some not so subtly. You know, we can get attached both to the subtle state I'm talking about, where the kalesas are far away, that state of seclusion of mind and heart. We can also get attached on the level of kaya to the conditions, right? So just on the level of conditions, when you find yourself, and it happens on retreats where no matter how quiet it is here, there's some noise that just bugs the heck out of you, you know? What's this doing here? I need my silence in order to progress in my practice. And we all go there. There's too many people. I mean, I don't think you could really say that here. Really, you have to really try. But if the mind is in enough of a snit, you can find something. Somebody's doing something that's annoying you. You know, they're not respecting the stillness in some way. There's some noise. You didn't get it perfect that in some way is intruding on the silence, which is upsetting my practice, you know? And that's when we're leaning into holding on to the conditions. But the conditions are only to help us recognize the silence, the seclusion, the spaciousness, the way into awareness and non-clinging in ourselves. And then to recognize that that's accessible all the time, not only in the deva realm, you know, of the forest refuge when nobody's doing anything to bother you. So we can get attached to the conditions, and that's not so subtle. And attached to, you know, the, the real stillness, quietness of mind, where it just feels that, you know, there's no problems anymore. So what's the need to keep on practicing? So we get caught there by that stopping, that's what Upandita calls stopping within. Um, or we can just be there, and we don't really feel that we're attached. We're not holding on to it, but we stop investigating. We kind of just ride on the tranquility or the coolness, 
And we don't quite have the energy of investigation, the enlightenment factors that Marcia talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's as if we get content. Um, I remember two friends, I think, but one in particular, who had been a forest monk in Thailand for eight or nine years. And he said ultimately he got very happy there, very peaceful. And he ultimately left, came back to the West as a monk, which is really hard, and ended up disrobing. But he told me once that really he thinks deep down the reason he left is because it was just, it got too easy. It got so peaceful and so calm, but it was, he could just intuitively feel that a great deal, not all, of course, it's useful, but that it wasn't the end, you know, that... Like uh, there's, you know, Ajahn Sumedho, uh, in, again in his book, Chitta Awaka, tells the story about how after meditating for years in, in the forest up in northeastern Thailand, just feeling like totally cooled out, peaceful, you know, and he'd have to go to Bangkok to renew his visa. It would be as if I told you guys you have to now go to Gardner to Walmart and gave you a shopping list, you know, tomorrow. That would be a, a, a good test how really equanimous and peaceful am I in the midst of, you know, I was in Walmart the other day, that's why I said that. I was with my my sister, and I I said, I call Walmart like a vortex, you know, (laughs) of suffering. You go in there to get one thing, and you can't get out for hours, you know. (laughs) It's like a little minor hell realm. And My sister, who doesn't really practice, is looking at me like, what are you, crazy? (laughs) What are you talking about, a vortex of evil that... I lose it in Walmarts, so I know I still have to keep going there from time to time to test. But anyway, Sumedho said he would find not all of the peace would go, but some of it would. And so that's not liberation, you know? That's not the full heart's release of non-clinging. There's still quite some conditioning as to um, I'm peaceful, but only if nothing bothers me or nothing new. I've gotten used to the bugs. I've gotten used to these things. But something new comes in, I'm all shaken up. So that's when my friend said he left the monastery uh, in order to see that. There's a quotation from the Buddha, which I, I'm, I'm uh, summarizing. I'm not giving the exact quotation, but he said somewhat that there's two things that he never lost sight of. One was a really putting out full effort. And the other was never to get content and think, well, this is good enough. You know, I've put out enough effort and this is good enough. I really don't need to keep practicing. It doesn't mean staying in intensive practice forever. It doesn't mean, oh, you should never leave a retreat until you've finally achieved arhat. You know, we're just trying to keep the place full here. But it does mean you don't leave retreat and think, well, that's it. I've done it. That was nice. Now I can cruise. Never thinking, as nice as this is, it's good enough, you know. But seeing, as there's still tendencies to get lost in craving, that's then the use to which we put the seclusion of body and the seclusion of mind. We're not cultivating chitta only because it's refreshing and purifying and easeful. Those things are good. A pleasant abiding here and now, as the Buddha often said, but not an end in itself, not a place to say, okay, and come to rest. 
but to then use the subtlety of awareness, of mindfulness, of seeing, to then cultivate, to really begin to see and investigate the much more subtler arisings of clinging, of sense of me around experience, of a sense of conceit, of comparing, of self-importance, to really viscerally experience on the very more subtle levels, which is really what's going on for many, many of you here. You know, you think I'm not in some huge demon experience, but then we start to see how much the sense of self arises just around subtle experience, the sense of comparing, the sense of judgment. Not to be discouraged by that. That's really, it's great that we start to see it. That's what we use, the seclusion from the stronger calaces and the seclusion from the flood of sensuality to be able to explore. As the Buddha talked about it as perfecting living alone. A couple of suttas. There's one where um, he's talking to a venerable elder monk, and the Buddha says to him, is it true, elder, that you live alone and praise the virtues of living alone? And he says, yes, Lord. The Buddha says, but how do you live alone? And why and how do you praise the virtues of living alone? The monk said, Lord, alone I enter the village for alms, alone I return. Alone I sit withdrawn in meditation, alone I do walking meditation. That is how I live alone and praise living alone. The Buddha says, yes, that is, there is that way of living alone. I don't say there isn't, but listen well to how your living alone can be perfected in its details. Pay close attention. As you say, he says, the Blessed One said, how is living alone perfected in its details? Just a minor detail here. This is the case where whatever is past is abandoned. Whatever is future is relinquished. And any passion and desire with regard to states of being in the present is not held to, is not fed. In other words, any clinging, any aversion, any reaction to states of being in the present is not held on to, is not fed. That is how living alone is perfected in its details. A much vaster, a much deeper and more subtle sense of living alone much more to do with freedom. Another sutta where he's talking to another monk on a similar subject says it in a different way where the monk asks him, what does lone dweller mean? What way is one dwelling with a partner and what way is one dwelling alone? And the Buddha says, there are migajala, that's the name of the monk, forms cognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tantalizing. And that could be the inner eye as well, right? If a bhikkhu, a practitioner, seeks delight in them, welcomes them, 
and remains holding to these forms, delight arises. When there is delight, there is infatuation. When there is infatuation, there is bondage. Bound by this fetter, a bhikkhu is called one dwelling with a partner. And then he goes through all the senses, sounds cognizable by the ear, odors by the nose, tastes cognizable by the tongue, tactile objects cognizable by the body, mental phenomena cognizable by the mind that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, tantalizing. And if we get lost in infatuation in relation to any of these, there is bondage. Thus, he says, even though a bhikkhu who dwells thus resorts to forests and groves, to remote lodgings where there are few sounds and little noise, desolate, hidden from people, appropriate for seclusion, he is still called one dwelling with a partner. For what reason? Because craving is his partner, and he has not abandoned it. Therefore, he is called one dwelling with a partner. And of course, the opposite. If one does not seek delight, does not remain holding to any sense object, then the infatuation does not arise. When there's no infatuation, there is no bondage. And thus, released from this fetter, a bhikkhu is called a lone dweller. And then, even though a bhikkhu who dwells thus lives in the vicinity of a village, associating with bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, with male and female lay followers, with kings and royal ministers, with sectarian teachers and their disciples, he is still called the lone dweller. For what reason? Because craving was his partner and he has abandoned it. Therefore, he is called a lone dweller. This is really, this is really the point of Viveka. This is the Viveka of freedom. Freedom from the bondage to clinging, to craving. And then, ostensibly, we could even spend the whole day in Walmarts and be a lone dweller. And that's the reason for the cultivation of seclusion of body, of the senses, and of the mind. To see that really, really, the just on a momentary level, to remember that that piece of non-clinging, the space in the heart and the mind that I personally find at times in nature, our koan really, is to recognize that that is available, that non-clinging is what allows us to recognize and really live from this space, and that it's always available, only available here and now in the silence and stillness and beauty of this retreat center, in the hubbub of our lives. The retreat is simply to help us really understand how clinging is created in response to sense pleasures, in response to our stories, to experience the suffering of it and lose our fascination with it and let it go. And, oh, here's a great poem by Lala, who was a a woman mystic in northern India in the 1300s. 
Some people abandon their homes, others abandon hermitages. All this renunciation does nothing if you are not deeply conscious. Day and night, be aware with each breath and live there. That's our koan. Just seclusion we wake up from moment to moment. Deep awareness with each breath and live there. And then we really see, like St. Anthony, you know, we might go back and forth, but really we emerge, it's never just for ourselves, that it quite naturally moves into a sense of um, compassion and kinship with all beings. I want to read uh, something from Thomas Merton about that. He's saying, the solitary is one who is aware of solitude in her or himself as a basic and inevitable human reality, not just as something which affects him as an isolated individual. Hence, this solitude is the foundation of a deep, pure, and gentle sympathy with all other humans, whether or not they are realizing the tragedy of their plight. More, the solitude is the doorway by which he enters into the mystery of God and brings others into that mystery by the power of his love and his humility. Or to just end with the words of an Anglican nun I read about who loved solitude so much that she spent 18 years living in an abandoned cabin that she fixed up on the edge of some remote cliff somewhere. I don't even know where. But she was not really quite alone because people kept coming to her and bringing their troubles to her. And when you know, she was asked, why do you keep you know, being so available when really what you love is the solitude? She said that she believes that the responsibility of the solitary, the solitary person like her, is to stand at the intersection between the love of God and suffering humanity. Really the culmination of our seclusion. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. beneficial energies generated by our sincere practice today in these last days. May these be shared with all beings everywhere, in all realms, in all conditions of existence. May our practice be the cause for the happiness, the freedom from suffering, the awakening of ourselves and all beings everywhere. (laughs) 